movement appears to be growing. Use of drugs appears to be spreading. There is the real danger that more and more young people may follow the call to turn on, tune in, drop out. L-S-D. Bad trips and a chance of chromosome damage. Now let's simmer down. Now, why some psychiatrists and researchers are giving psychedelic drugs a second look as a possible way of treating depression and some mental illnesses. The dead, they've been microdosing for a long time. They were early, early microdosers. I really shouldn't say more than that, but you can fill in the blanks. This is Paul Stamets. He's a mycologist, which means he studies mushrooms, specifically magic mushrooms or psilocybin you know, psychedelics. His TED Talk, Six Ways Mushrooms Can Save the World, has been watched nearly 8 million times. But in the past, this area of research has raised eyebrows in the scientific community. That's starting to change. From Sonos, this is America's Dead, and I'm your host, Emmett Malloy. And in this episode, Paul... You have a pretty wild story on how you fell in love with psilocybin mushrooms. Yes. Um, I relive the story every time I tell it, so it's kind of deeply personal. To put this in context, I had a you know, psychopathological stuttering habit. My stuttering habit was so bad. I was get stuck on a consonant. So I... I took these mushrooms and I went for a walk in Ohio in the summertime. There's this one tree I would sit underneath. I've always liked this tree. It's where I would sit to meditate, think about my life. But I never really climbed it. So I said, well, why don't I start climbing? So I climbed, and as I climbed and ascended the tree, I started getting literally higher and higher, figuratively uh, and physically. Now the mushrooms are coming on really strong. Okay, wow, this is happening. On the horizon, there's these black clouds, and a storm was coming in. In Ohio in the summertime, there were these ferocious storms. And there was lightning, and the boiling clouds, and then these zaps of lightning going down. And as I got higher and higher, and the storm came closer and closer, Every time the lightning strike, you know, I get this, this, this fractal cascade of images, geometrical patterns, all of that, and then... I'm, oh my God, this is great! I'm watching this horizon of all these lightning bolts, you know, just fascinated, and then the air became sort of liquid. I'm going, holy shit, I am now on the tallest tree in the area in the middle of a lightning storm in the summer, and I'm high as a kite getting higher and higher. I ate the entire back. You know, I was so friggin' high. And so the winds picked up, the tree started moving, I had vertigo, and I grabbed onto the tree, and then I felt this axis mundi. I'm attached to the tree, the atmosphere of the heavens, and I'm rooted literally into the ground, into the mycelium, Oh my God, life is so beautiful. I'm in love with nature. This is the essence of being. And I just had this feeling of unanimity with the universe. But the other practical side of me said, 
I could be killed by lightning. Great <laughs> you're having spiritual enlightenment, but it might be the end of your life. And then I came out of the tree. I didn't die. What are you going to learn from this? What's your take-home message? I have a mission to help the earth. That's the message I kept on getting. The earth is in trouble. You are a voice that's important for other people to hear. But you can't speak. You can't communicate. You stutter. Time for you to wake up. Stop stuttering. Stop stuttering now. And so I said that. Then it became a cadence. Like it became lyrics for a song. And I said that over and over and over again. And the more I said it, I had this feeling of being released, of blissfulness, of being liberated, of being ascending into my being. And this is who I can be. And it was very spiritual, very intense. I woke up the next morning, and there's this one woman, I liked her a lot, but every time I tried to talk to her, I was just so self-conscious. I was stuttered like crazy. It was humiliating. But I saw her the next morning, she's coming down the sidewalk, and I was walking, and and she's coming down, and she said, good morning, Paul. And for the first time, I looked her directly in the eye, and I said, good morning. How are you? And that's the first words I spoke since this experience. And I was like shocked. I just didn't stutter. And she said, I'm really well. It's good to see you. And I was blessed with her attention. I felt just so thankful to her that she sort of anchored this for me. She now gave me a new reference point. Um, And then I moved forward. Now, I like to say I do stutter, but it's 99% resolved from that one experience. Now I'm wondering if you can tell us about how you fell in love with the dead and how your research and and maybe even the history of um, psychedelic research sort of fits in here. I was sort of a hippie living up in the Cascades in this remote cabin underneath this snow-capped volcano. I was living by myself. It was a very intense time personally, and I was tripping a lot on LSD and psilocybin. And I had a TIAC reel-to-reels with all sorts of open-source dead concerts. And I'd listen to them because of my passion and my interest, and frankly, because of isolation and loneliness. My best friends were the dead on my reel-to-reel. And I just dove into taxonomy of psilocybin mushrooms. So I was self-taught. The message that I received is a message that many people receive, that we're all connected to nature and we need to protect the mothership you know, that has given us birth. Um, indigenous elders from all over the world help blaze this path. Um, we're using these sacraments uh, because they built community, they built kindness, and they made people less violent and more pro-environmental. I mean, you got to get a ton of questions about being a scientist that studies magic mushrooms. And if what you really do is hard science at all, color in this journey, Paul. So academically, if you tried to get involved with psilocybin mushrooms or psychedelics, you were ostracized, uh, you were kicked out of the universities, you were not promoted. It was a huge stigma. It was a career killer to continue in this research. And so it stopped. And so when I entered into the mycological community, literally, I was at one conference 
Well, I walked into the conference, and it was like I had a force field around me. And wherever I walked, people would keep their distance away from me. It's like they didn't want to be even seen with me because I was associated with psychedelic psilocybin. So that's the way it was. Yes, we were all put into the bucket of being drug users, hippies, dirty. And thankfully, some of the senior most scientists in the field and it took me under their wing. Quick lesson on the history of psychedelics. LSD has a truly bonkers story, and it really deserves its own podcast. But it was studied by the CIA in a series of controversial experiments called Project MK Ultra. On the drill field, the men obeyed his commands accurately and with precision. Two hours later, the squad, all except the drill sergeant, now drugged with LSD again was ordered to fall in. The response was not the same. There was much laughter as the group attempted to give expression to inner emotions. This elation was group-supported, and an individual who was separated from the group would show severe disturbance. By the early 60s, there's actually mainstream interest in studying psychedelics. Some people were starting to think of psychedelics as a way to change the social fabric of America. In the last six years, we have witnessed an astonishing expansion and elevation of human consciousness in this country. The next six years will be a period of dramatic change in regard to the social acceptance of such psychedelic drugs as marijuana and LSD. By 1970, we'll have our first LSD congressman and our first marijuana-smoking judges. That's when amateur chemists started to make their own LSD. And they experimented in the infamous acid test. The acid test is everywhere in this spaceship. Everywhere you are, you're all acid testing and acid tasting. Inside the confines of this interspatial dome, you will find the acid test taking place. The acid tests were uh, essentially a concert where uh, LSD was, uh, you know, given to the people that, that entered the concert, and, and uh, they were all tripping. This is my friend, Josh Hagajanian. He's kind of like the show's resident deadhead. He's probably out seeing a show right now. You know, that was, uh, you know, when LSD was still legal. And, and uh, Ken Kesey, who was, you know, kind of the, the, the main figure of the, of the Merry Pranksters, was helping organize these amazing musical and psychedelic experiences that, you know, kind of created the scene behind the Grateful Dead. They call themselves the Grateful Dead. Do you think that your movement or your idea, the hip idea, is essentially connected up with drugs? Yeah, I would say that, that that's uh, a, a large part of the framework. The acid tests were really the, I think, kind of the practice grounds for the Grateful Dead finding their sound. Because if, if you heard them in like 66, it was a much more kind of folk blues band. By 67, 68, they become so psychedelic, and I think that has everything to do with the acid tests that were going on in the Bay Area. The 
music is so far out there. I mean, you can tell that not only is the the crowd, um, you know, high on acid, but the band is too. You know, one of these days, your own self will be gone. Jerry and the rest of the band are taking the music to really, really deep levels. They were so well-versed in improvisation that by the time we were seeing them, they were a well-oiled machine. But I think that's kind of when they learned their chops was back when they were kind of playing all night long at these acid tests. That's when the Grateful Dead really found the, 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 the freeform rock psychedelic music and formed what is really its own genre, which is jam band music. But in the middle of all this, LSD and psilocybin got political. Anti-war demonstrators protest U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War in mass marches, rallies, and demonstrations. Is a psychedelic trip really worth risking the damage to your minds and your bodies? Well, how do you know, Mom? You've never experienced it. You've never been there. Well, I don't have to have syphilis to know I don't want it. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. It was a way of Nixon... Uh, to be able to throw the political opposition and all the parties opposed to Richard Nixon to the same bucket. Again, this is mushroom expert Paul Stamets. So the gay rights movement, uh, the civil rights movement, African-Americans, giving women equal rights, anti-Vietnam War protesters, they find a thread. They all smoke marijuana. <laughs> and they, they tripped on LSD and psilocybin. So it's very convenient to, to uh, marginalize all us and target us using the war of drugs as a commonality factor that they could then politicize and then pass laws targeting specifically our lifestyle. The government made psychedelics illegal, starting with LSD in 1968 and psilocybin in 1970 all in the name of national security. That started what we now know as the war on drugs, which came with increased police presence, community surveillance, and a ton more criminalization. It really laid the groundwork for policies that continue to disproportionately discriminate against black and brown communities. And it kickstarted what we now call mass incarceration. It also created new social stigmas against psychedelics. But somehow, in the midst of all this, 
The dead kept the spirit of the psychedelic revolution alive. Psychedelic research never really went away either. It had to be done through underground communities and networks. People like Paul remained dedicated to exploring the benefits of these substances, even though they could get busted for it. And that research has led to some really important breakthroughs, like Paul's latest work. We found something that I think is really important for musicians to know. Neurodegeneration is coincident with age. Translation, the older you get, the less your neurons can function properly. And this may be, in a sense, even central to the dead's success, because they're still extraordinarily good musicians. So, okay, just really quick. What is this test exactly? Uh, it's a validated test for Parkinson's. And so how many times can you tap your fingers in 10 seconds? We look at the 55-plus-year-olds in this data set, and we're seeing something that is just totally bizarre and remarkable. In the 55-plus-year-olds, using niacin, lion's mane, and a microdose of psilocybin, the finger frequency of tapping went from approximately 43 to 73 in 30 days. Now, you think of a piano player, you think of a guitar player. The fact that you have greater digital dexterity and frequency, that's not a placebo. That means that something neurophysiologically has occurred to give you a better response. But the fact that we might be able to rewire the nervous system in age and increase uh, dexterity neuromuscular performance. Elderly people, they fall, they break their hip, they go to the hospital, they die from an infection. Or that's the the point that they really start declining. When you factor that all in, this could potentially be a game changer. Paul, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I learned a shit ton. But I got one last question. And it's, you've gotten close with some of the members of the dead over the years. I'm wondering if anybody told you Jerry's take on your research. I did send him a communication, send him one of my books, and the manager wrote back, he loves your work, he loves your books, and mushrooms are his favorite vegetable. Now, the first thing I thought to say is, well, Jerry, mushrooms aren't vegetables. (laughs) But I appreciate the response. On the next episode of America's Dead. I meet a lot of younger musicians now that are like, oh God, I'm so exhausted. And it's like, listen, Jack, you're forgetting something here. You're getting paid to go on this like rock and roll adventure. It's like the ultimate blessing. Like you should be you're counting them up every day. I sit down with Mac DeMarco and the band Animal Collective, two of my favorite acts touring today that I think are keeping the spirit of the dead alive and well. Not just in the music they make, but in the community they cultivate. We always played a lot of the material for our records live before we ever put it to tape, sometimes like a year, a year and a half in in advance. And because those recordings got passed around, people always knew the songs. And they made our live shows like a really special experience because, I mean, similar to The Dead, some of the songs that people were most excited about were songs that hadn't been even put down yet. That's next time on America's Dead. Thanks for listening to America's Dead from Sonos. If you haven't yet, 
this is your moment. Share the show with a buddy. Text your favorite episode to a friend. Tell them why you're digging the show and let us know what you think. We're on Instagram at Sonos Radio. You can subscribe and get all of our episodes on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you love to listen. America's Dead is produced by Work by Work. Scott Newman, Gemma Brown, Kathleen Ottinger, Alex Kappelman, and Ben Montoya. Additional production from my old friend Josh Agajanian. The show is mixed by Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Our theme music is by Jake Longstreth, John Nixon, Aaron Olson, and Ryan Adloff of Mountain Brews and Richard Pictures. And a special thanks to Joe Dawson at Sonos. I'm Emmett Malloy. Catch you next time.